Hello. Let's go for a ride. Here we are. Ninth story. <laughs> the ninth story. Nicholas was older than sin and his beard kept growing no whiter. He wanted to die. The dwarfish natives of the Arctic caverns did not speak his language but confessed in their own twittering tongue, conducted incomprehensible rituals when they were not actually working in the factories. Once every year they forced him, sobbing and protesting into endless night. During the journey he would stand near every child in the world, leave one of the dwarf's invisible gifts by its bedside. The children slept, frozen into time. He envied Prometheus and Loki, Sisyphus and Judas. His punishment was harsher. Ho, ho, ho. Neil Gaiman. And Merry Christmas. The way to kick off the holiday season. A great little story. One-page story. A little one-pager from Neil Gaiman, entitled Nicholas Was. Oh, yeah. Nicholas Was Ellipsis, <laughs> I guess we should say. Yeah, there's Ellipsis that's, in there. That's for Dr. John Towers. That's right. Um, Just for you. Yeah. In, in the title, John, Nicholas Was Ellipsis. Now, Neil Gaiman, I, I actually had an opportunity to uh, to see and uh, meet him through the arts and lectures, and they bring writers into into town. And he's done comics, he's done movies, he's done. Oh, well, he's know, done it all. He does the he does the spoken words. Yeah, he reads he, his own stuff. I mean, he he does uh, a lot of his own narration on Audible. You can tell when someone when they love their craft, and, yes. and, and Neil definitely loves his craft. I mean, he's um, I don't know. I'm, I'm speechless when I when I talk about Neil. You, Neil wrote one of the, one of my favorite uh, short stories ever. Do you need a minute? I, I might. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do, you, do you want me to do? You, do you want me to step out of the studio? Please stand by. We'll be right back. Please stand by. We'll be right back. Please stand by. We'll be right back. Please stand by. So I love the short stories because here's the thing. I just wanted to share this before you go down your thoughts, because this is from the introduction to Smoke and Mirrors, which is a, a collection of the, the short stories um, in it's the introduction. And this is from the author, the author being Neil Gaiman. It says writing is flying in dreams when you remember when you can when it works it's that easy and you know as and i don't know i don't want to speak for dan but that's one of the things that i like about game and, and that's one of the things that speaks to me as a writer he boils it down it is that simple 
but it's also that hard. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. And it, it, and and the way he it's his writing is effortless. And and as we were talking about before, he doesn't write anything about Gary or or Harry. <laughs> thank that's God. right. And and again, it's that whole thing. It's like and and I don't profess to be a, a, a world class scholar of Gaiman's work. Good Omens is really the work of his that I know the most. And as you and I talked about before, I don't know what's Gaiman and what's Pratchett in that book. But I that is the one work of fiction that I would probably hold out there is my favorite work of fiction of all time because I think that is classic. Yeah, it's, it's a very great well story and there's such a great overarching British sarcastic yes. young ones money python then you know it, it's great and I love it in yeah. that regard. But it's a good sci-fi tale too. I read Sandman back in the day. Yeah. Um, but I'd be hard pressed to tell you that I remember what that was and I had a collection of game and stuff from Sandman. It was a hardbound collection and I, I've always loved his writing. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, just that little blurb right there that <laughs> writing is flying in dreams when you remember, when you can, when it works. It's that easy. And that's that's the thing. I mean, ideas come to you. Yeah. And if you don't, I mean, if I... you don't I, get them down, yeah. they're gone. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And it's like, it, again, like I just said, it's that simple and it's that hard. Because um, things will come to me... I'll get ideas for stories at five o'clock on a Saturday morning and I'll be like, yeah, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember that. And then it's fleeting. It's gone. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a lot of this stuff and, and you know it, Dan, because you've actually done it and you've committed pen to paper where I've been derelict in that. Um, do you want to say anything more about gaming at this particular time? I mean, we're going to, well, we're going to explore gaming a lot, not in the way that Amanda does. No. No. Go ahead, Dan. The short story. I mean, I love collections of short stories because there's there's usually some sort of if it, when they pick their collections properly, which I think Neil does a good job at calling him Neil in that case, my buddy or something. Um, I think we should refer to him as Neil. Probably. He joins the group of, you know, like Bobby De Niro. Yeah. As we know, um, as we learned about in a previous episode in Elmore. Yeah. Uncle Elmore. Uncle Elmore. So when the writer does it correctly, they pick a collection of stories that they're all independent works, but they kind of play off of each other. There's a theme to it. There's a feel to it. Um, and in that collection that you have, Smoke and Mirrors, is that not the collection that contains Snow Glass Apples? Snow Glass Apples is in here, but before before we go on and talk about Snow Glass Apples, which you introduced me to, and I will admit, was the reason that I picked up this collection. If Dan tells me, Dan's a good friend, and if Dan tells me, hey, Craig, read this, I'll take his word for it. And he said, you got to read Snow Glass Apples, and he's been talking about this for some time. So I finally picked up. Uh, he finally jumped off that bridge. <laughs> I finally did. It only took me about a year, um, but I did it, and I just purchased this collection about a month ago in anticipation of uh, our recent vacation that was on where I knew I'd have some time to read. And um, Snow Glass Apples was the first thing that I read. And um, we'll get to that in just a second. But before we move on from that, uh, setting the tone for the holiday season, Dan has already recited Nicholas was to us, but the notes that, that Gaiman wrote about it in the collection is he says, uh, every Christmas I get cards from artists. They paint them themselves or they draw them. They are things of beauty, monuments to inspired creativity. Every Christmas, I feel insignificant and embarrassed and talentless. So I wrote this one year, wrote it early for Christmas. Dave McKean calligraphied it elegantly, and I sent it out to everyone I could think of. My card. It's exactly 100 words long, 102 including the title, and first saw print in Drabble 2, a collection of 100 word long short stories. I keep meaning to do another Christmas card story, but it's always December 15th before I remember, so I put it off until next year. 
which I think is fantastic. That that's the thing, Dan, that if somebody said, Craig, you got to write something that's brilliant like that and inspired and about Christmas, and I'm going to give you 100 words to do it. It would take me 100 words to complete my first sentence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like when you go back and read that, because to have like a hundred word limit Mm -hmm. and have something that that's that's that broad in scope. And I got to tell you, I mean, I'm not and I don't know why this particular thing hit me. And I think I think it's telling that, you know, we're doing this right now and it's right around the holidays. So I think it's appropriate in that regard. But I read this and I was like, that is fantastic on like eight thousand different levels yes because it's needing like what you and i were talking about it's a story and if um, i i don't think it comes right out and hits you in the face and says hello this is santa claus right you know exactly right but eventually you get to it in words 98 99 and 100 yeah with the the ho 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 yes and it's just to be able to sit there and put something together like that and edit and get a story out get a full theme in that limited amount of time yeah is it's genius there is no word other than that to describe that ability that Gaiman has. And again, you know, there's a lot of other writers. I'm just particularly fond of Gaiman. And I, you know, was sporting a Woody poolside um, in Florida when I read this. Yeah, Santa Claus often has that effect. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Come sit on my lap. But I just, you know, the story, again, listeners, go back and listen to the beginning of this episode when Dan reads it um, and listen to it over and over again and go find it. It's if, if you like writing, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating exercise. And if you're a writer, I challenge you to sit down and write anything meaningful in a hundred words. It's tough. Yes. Um, if not impossible and write it around a theme and have a beginning and an end. It's, it's very difficult. But Send us your original story and yeah. we'll read it on the air. Yeah. Give me your hundred words. That's right. We'll um, read it. And just saying, we won't include the title in the word count. Um, <laughs> We won't. Um, but uh, I thought it was neat that um, Prometheus and Loki and Sisyphus and Judas, I thought that was kind of neat that he, mm-hmm. or he he likened St. Nick's punishment to those guys. Yeah. Um, Makes you wonder what St. Nick did. Right, right, right. I love that he leaves invisible gifts. Right. <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever look at the punishment of Prometheus? I mean, I knew of Prometheus, not from the, the prequel to Aliens. Hello. Doesn't he have his eyes being constantly pecked out or something? Or it's close. No, you're very close. That's, that's funny because Prometheus is the one who, he's the guy who steals the fire. Steals the, the fire from the gods, and gives right? it to the humans. He's essentially Satan in right. uh, the Christian stories. Same, right. same character. Right. But it's not his eyes. It's his liver. His liver. That's right. Okay. I knew it was something. And he's bound and every day an eagle comes and eats his liver, but their liver reforms in the next day. Because he's a god. And he eats it every day. So every day, that's his point. He has to have his his liver eaten by an eagle every day. That sounds... It's delightful. It is kooky. And the the punishment of Loki is very similar. Not Thor's Loki. Well, it is Thor's yes. Loki, but it's not that. Not this. Marvel Comics. Right. It's not Marvel Loki. Comics. Like, and Sisyphus, you know, we, you and I used to joke about this all the time, but we would say things were a Sisyphean task. Yeah. It's just Sisyphus. Pushing that boulder He pushes up the, the boulder up the hill and only have it roll down again. So I, I love the What's fact- Loki's punishment? Loki, I know, is he's bound by the entrails of his dead son, something, and there's something, it's very similar to Prometheus, something comes and either pecks away at him or... Interesting. Have you read American Gods, by the way? I used to have American Gods. I I actually own, and I don't know where the hell it is. I actually bought that book. I did in hardcover. I'll Uh, lend it to you if you want it. I have the reissued version. 
which apparently I would assume probably has stuff that got cut out originally that you, know, you wanted to be in there. You, you know what I just... The author's preferred text. I, I just ordered... Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Philosophy and series. I have a lot of those books, you know, because I, I like philosophy, studied that a lot when I was younger. And there's this, uh, I can't remember who the, the publisher is, mm -hmm. but there's this great series of Philosophy and, and it's elements of pop culture. So I have like Philosophy and Batman, Philosophy and Bruce Springsteen, Philosophy and Pink Floyd, Philosophy and Jesse Pinkman, Superheroes, Philosophy and Breaking Bad. I have that here. Oh, really? Yeah. Philosophy and 24. But there is a philosophy. Philosophy and Neil Gaiman, which I just ordered. And there's oh, also yeah. a Philosophy and Walking Dead, which I, I ordered both of those things um, online. So having been inspired recently by all these works of Gaiman, yeah. um, I want to see this uh, philosophy of Gaiman. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so so that's it. So, you know, everybody uh, get into the holiday spirit. I say with my tongue firmly implanted in my cheek. Um, we thought we would share Nicholas was with you. So, so Dan, a little bit about uh, snow glass apples, which again, I gotta tell you, I don't wanna, I don't wanna give anybody, give that story to anybody who hasn't read it, but that's, um, whew. Yeah, it's, it's, okay. wow. We did our- Don't get me wrong. Great, fantastic. Oh yeah. Fan, I'm gonna- It's one of the, yeah. Fan fucking tastic yeah. story, but go ahead, Dan. Yeah, it's um when I, when I actually it's funny because w whenever I did have the opportunity to get a couple books signed by Mr. Gaiman and had maybe two two and a half minutes of his time while he was signing it and exchanged a few words with him, I said, you know, actually my favorite piece that you've ever written is is Snow Glass Apples, right. and unfortunately I bought that for my Kindle, so I don't really have anything for you to sign that has it. And, and his his comment was yeah. that it was one of <coughs> the pieces that he's still the most proud of. But what I love about Snowglass Apples, and I don't want to spoil it. So I'm going to tell you now, if you don't want to know what Snowglass Apples is about, this would be a good time for you to skip ahead because I am actually going to, for the people that have read this story, I do want to say a few things about it. So starting now, go ahead and skip ahead. To avoid spoilers, skip ahead seven minutes and 20 seconds to timestamp 21 minutes. 20 seconds. It's a retelling of a fairy tale, but just like Nicholas was, it does not come right out and beat you over the head with yeah. what it is. It's structured and written in such a way that as the story goes along, you get certain words and certain phrases and certain colors and things that I think for me, when I read it the first time, it subconsciously started to enter my mind what story I was reading. And I read probably a good half of the story before I realized what I was reading about. Anyway, Snow Glass Apples is obviously a retelling of Snow White. It's done in what I would consider close to the way the original spirit of the story was meant to be. We talked a lot about that in episode two, the first episode that we did together about fairy tales. Yeah. And I made reference briefly to that story, but it's very dark. And oh, it, it, incredibly dark. And I knew before I read it, and I, I only knew that, it, that what it was about, but it was because Dan had shared it with me. And, and just to go back a little bit, it's kind of interesting to me and maybe to no one else that when Dan met Gaiman, it was a year ago, and he asked me if I wanted to go. And I was absolutely interested in going, but it was November of 2012. Yeah. And I couldn't go because I was in Florida. <laughs> 
And interestingly, a year later, I was also, again, in Florida because we go at the same time. Every year. Um, every year. And I just thought it was telling that, you know, Dan Dan got to meet Gaiman and I was very jealous and, and, and wanted to attend with him. But obviously, you know, going to Florida with the family was first and foremost. And so a year later, uh, exactly a year later. <laughs> I was in Florida reading Snow Glass Apples, which yes. was, was, was what Dan had told me about the year before that. But I knew going into it, because Dan and I had talked about this, that it was a retelling. I mean, Dan, Dan didn't spoil any of the story. Um, and it's kind of one of those things where I think if you look at the title, it's relatively innocuous. You wouldn't necessarily make the connection as you would with Nicholas was. And yeah. then even even after reading the story, you still might not make the connection. It's not very obvious. Yeah. It's, there's not an obvious connection. I think there kind of is by the time you read it all and digest it yeah. and you go back and look at it. But the thing that I was thinking that even if I had not known the thing that makes it more relevant now back to when he originally had written it was he makes the allusion to the huntsman yes which you would know from a couple of years ago right when they did the movie with charlie's there and and uh, and and the guy i think it's thor isn't it it's him yeah exactly right um, where and then you forget that from the original days uh the huntsman being involved in the story and there is reference to the huntsman i love the fact that snow white is actually the bad guy in it's this. It's tremendous. And the dwarves are these evil, dirty, filthy little creatures that live in the forest. It's it's almost it's like more realistic almost. Isn't and it? folks, when Dan says filthy, they are filthy. <laughs> if you've not read the story, yeah. They're filthy. Yeah. And so is she. And, and so is a little Snow White. Yeah. She's not as pure as the driven snow, let's no. just say. And let's just say she's been driven a few times. Yeah, and she and she's a she's a she's a fan of the blood too. She is. Um, it's a it's a great retelling and, and the thing is from the notes that Gaiman has at the in, at the beginning of uh, Smoke and Mirrors, he says, I like to think of this story as a virus. Once you've read it, you may never be able to read the original story in the same way again. And you know what? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't the core, and it's been a long time since I've read the doctored up version of Snow White, but the Huntsman's supposed to bring the queen back Snow White's heart, correct? It's funny that you say that because I have never read the original of Snow White. And since in, in the last two weeks, I've actually been trying to get a copy. I'm trying can, to- it's, it's online. It's, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's Gutenberg Press. It's yeah. public domain now. Because it's- Oh, Gutenberg. In the, is, it, is that Steve Gutenberg? From, yeah, Steve Gutenberg. From yeah. the cocoon? Yeah. <laughs> from Police Academy, actually. Uh -huh. All right, I went Cocoon Police Academy, Gutenberg Press. Okay, um, fair enough. Yeah, well, there's a project, the Gutenberg Project, which is all these old, old stories that, you know, are out in the public domain yeah. now that are out of copyright protection, and, and you can get them as part of cultural literacy, as part of history. You, you know what's funny? As an aside here, we talked about the, the fairy tales and whatnot. It's interesting walking through Disney World. <laughs> After you know the origin of these. After we talked about this stuff, yeah. you know, it's like... Did it change your trip this time? It did, actually. Yeah. One of the parades that they have, there's a float of Cinderella. Yeah. And the stepsisters. And I was like, oh, they cut their feet. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, and you look at everything different. Yeah. One of the shows, there was something about Sleeping Beauty. And I kept going back to our discussion about, you know, the uh, in, in the comment where I was like, well, that sounds like Cinemax after dark. Yeah. You know, with the- The, the guy that rapes her while she's asleep and, and right. gets her pregnant. That's right. And then um, we were on the uh, 
the Little Mermaid run. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. And I just kept thinking about the blood splattering on the feet and yes. all that. And it was like, this is, this is it puts you in a different it's almost It's almost creepy. It is. When you look at, here's the original version, right. and here's what it's been docked. So, so back to Snow Glass Apples and, and uh, the story. The original story is she goes out, she sends the huntsman out to kill Snow White because she wants to be the fairest of them all. And the, the huntsman is to bring her back Snow White's heart as right. proof that Snow White was killed. And he brings her back the heart of a boar instead. But I mean, I think that that's interesting that that's incorporated into Gaiman's story in such a way that that's the only way you can kill this girl is to get her heart. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, you you see this, how how established authors go about retelling tales. Yes. You know, and and, and I think that's really cool. You know, again, back from the notes um, that, that Gaiman has about this, you know, he talks about the, the tale, the Snow White tale. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in his own words saying that he must have read it a thousand times and how he still has the illustrated version of the story that he had from the time he was three. Yeah. But then he talks about, but that thousand and first reading was the charm. And I started to think about the story all back to front and wrong way round. It sat in my head for a few weeks and then on a plane I began to write the story in longhand and when the plane landed the story was three quarters done. You know that's the whole thing it's like here's a story that he's read over and over again chewed on a billion times ran, yeah. ran around in his head and you know he was like well I want to retell that story. Yeah. I want to do this. I want to put my own version. I, something I subconscious this. clicked. Right. He right. saw something heard something <laughs> right. watched a movie read a book read an article something is percolating back there with that story and the two clicked together yeah and you're like hey that makes sense i want to do that which i and, and that's the thing that's like you know as a as a as a creative soul that's the kind of stuff that resonates with me because you sit there and like i don't know if you do this dan i mean oh i'm sure you do because like you'll sit there and you'll be like man i can't get inspired by something i can't get an idea and then it's like well why am I beating myself up to be so damn original? Nobody else is. I mean, everything is derivative <laughs> of something. But in, in, I find sometimes that that in and of itself becomes the inspiration or somewhat, you know, the muse for for your next work. I'll watch like a movie like Heat, like mm -hmm. I've talked about before, which I've, I've seen a billion times. Right. Um, and as much as Heat doesn't seem to be formulaic, you know, because it's three hours long and there's a lot of different story arcs in it, then you watch a movie like The Town um, with Ben Affleck and Jeremy mm -hmm. Renner and, you know, those. Uh, and if you laid those movies over top of one another, you could almost see the writer of one sitting and watching the other and saying, I'm going to take a story and it's going to be about this. That ultimately, this is a group of you know, you know, criminals. They rob banks. Here's the backstory on these guys. Here's how they got to know one another. Here's this main character. He has this particular love. You can yeah. lay those stories over top of one another, and that's what I do. It's just reassuring to have somebody like Gaiman sit here and basically do the whole. I've got this story that's been kicking around since I was three years old. Yeah. And it's Snow White, and everybody fucking knows it's Snow White. But yes. you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna tell you the same story but I'm gonna tell it to you in my voice. And unless I beat you over the head, yeah. you aren't even gonna know. 
that I'm telling that you. That I'm telling you. Snow exactly. White. Right, 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 right. And and from And that's that, the payoff. Right, exactly. And from that, I get a shit ton of inspiration. Yeah. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway. One of the things we played around with one time was writing a story that's well known <laughs> in a completely different way and see how long you can fool the other person into thinking it's not that story. Yeah. Before you and go on with it. that, I will confess that you did that to me one time when we used to work together. Um, I remember it. You sent me an email and it was like this story and you did this whole thing about see if you can and I was too embarrassed to admit that I didn't know what the fuck it was. What was it? I don't remember. Was it Scooby Doo? I don't know. Because I've done that before in the because past. Because you, you did it and it was like I was like and I and and again I was too I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was pride or ego or whatnot. <laughs> I'm like Shit, that's really fucking good. And um, I don't want to tell them I don't know what the fuck it is. <laughs> you know, we've, we've kind of talked about this several times. Um, there are basic, there are only seven basic themes in storytelling. Yep. And everything is a recounting of whatnot. It's right. all about how you get your characters from one point to another. And whether you make the audience a, you know, i.e. listeners, care about the characters. Right. And you do that through, you know, describing characters, although not in great detail as we <laughs> yeah. from Uncle yeah, Elmore. Uncle Elmore. But, and, but you do it through dialogue. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, and if you go even further, there's really only three stories. Man versus man, man versus himself, and man versus nature. Well, there you go. Well, now you've really made it... Uh there's your core theme. Jeez, it was hard enough with seven stories. <laughs> now it's three. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So what else do we want to talk about today? I don't know. I, I, we've, we've done some supersized episodes lately. Maybe this is a short one. Um, well, we don't do anything short. I'm sure we'll... Well, hey now. We'll squeeze a couple of things in there. Well, hey there you now. go. Um, you know, we should go to a break and then... We should. Uh, after the break, we'll be back and we'll, we'll be blah, back. Blah, 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 blah. We'll be back and then we'll uh, close out with a, uh, a Use Your Illusion segment. Go from there. So, you know, cue the music. Let's get some Snow Whitey music in there. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll let that play for a while. Hey folks, welcome back. And this part I'm flying solo for. Mr. Weber was unavailable for the interview with Dr. Nassau. He was kind enough to do this on very short notice for us. I didn't actually expect him to be available so quickly to us. This wasn't initially intended to be a part of this episode, but we got very lucky and had him available to us much quicker than we expected. So here it is, my interview with Dr. Nassau. Today, I'm joined by author and historian David Nassau. Dr. Nassau has several books to his name, including three very popular histories, each told through the lives of three pivotal historical figures, William Randolph Hearst, Andrew Carnegie, and Joseph Kennedy. 
The last is the subject of his newest book, The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy. He is a professor of history at the City University of New York. Dr. Nassau, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Delighted to be here. As I told you in our initial email communications, I was very interested in your statements about the importance of using good storytelling techniques in nonfiction as well as in fiction. Can you start off by expanding on that and explaining to the listeners how that influences how you write? Well, sure. I think what historians do is tell stories. We tell stories. Hopefully, they're stories of things that actually happened. In doing that, in telling those stories, we dive into the evidence. We search in the past for records, for documents, for photographs, for visual clues, and we piece together a story that tells us something we didn't know about who we were in the past. One of the things that I picked up during your talk that I really enjoyed is you don't refer to yourself as a biographer. You refer to yourself as a historian who tells stories through the eyes of key historical figures. How does that differ from what a traditional biographer does? Well, I begin as a historian. So telling a great life story is not for me an end in itself. Uh, Mm -hmm. We all like to read about fascinating characters from the past. I do as well. But what I try to do is I try to use these characters to tell a larger story that extends beyond those characters about the society they lived in, about the nations that they inhabited and helped lead, about their life, but also about their times. I do that as a historian. Biography is my means to tell stories about the past. And you had three other great books prior to those three biographies, correct? Yes. I wrote a book on public education called School to Order. I wrote Mm -hmm. a book about public amusements and the making of America called Going Out. And in between Mm -hmm. those two, I wrote a book about immigrant children workers and how they became American and then Americanized their parents. And that book was called Children of the City. That was the inspiration for the film Newsies, which is now a Broadway play. Yes, that's become quite a phenomenon. Winner of the 2012 Tony Awards for Best Score, Best Choreography, very well received by critics, great ratings all across the board. Yeah, that that came from me. I was the first to find the clues that led to tell the story of the newsboy strike against her and Pulitzer at the turn of the 20th century. I always enjoy it when something that's meticulously researched based on real events is taken and also becomes entertainment. It must be really gratifying to have something that you spent so much time and effort on change and become something that is now, in addition to a great book, also entertainment that a lot of people are enjoying. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's not the same when I write books, and when those books are transformed into something else, a lot is gained and a lot is lost. I regard myself as the catalyst, the stimulus, um, and that's great. 
I think the more we know about the past, the better off we all are as individuals and as a people. Absolutely. And for me, as a lover of stories and storytelling, I think it's great that that information has made its way into a medium that allows you to reach a whole new audience that you normally otherwise wouldn't get. And that leads me into my next question, which is, when you're a storyteller and you're telling a story, whether it's fact or fiction, the ultimate job of the writer is to convey a good story. So I'm curious, how do you take a historical topic or historical figure and weave that into a story that's compelling to your reader? Well, I try to, you know, I, I teach doctoral students and I've taught all my life. Only now am I teaching students who are getting their PhDs. What I'm trying to do right now in, in telling my stories is to talk to my public as I would talk. I always tell this to my students. Before you write something down, you should think of a way of telling it to your Aunt Gertrude who says, what are you doing? And if you can't explain to Aunt Gertrude at your Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner what it is that you're doing, then you haven't fully formulated your ideas yet. That's a great exercise. Well, we're in the communication business. We all are. One of the definitions of humankind is that we are the only creatures that tell stories. You know, we're a storytelling people. In doing that, in telling those stories, we understand who we are and where we are and, and why we are. Um, we're a storytelling species. We're the only species that tells stories. And we're the only species that attempts to, in telling those stories, to enrich our lives. We live in three dimensions at the same time. We live in the past through our stories. We live in the future through those stories. And we live in the present when we compose those stories. You've rendered me speechless for a moment. I think... I love that. I think that's the best way I've ever heard that described. Well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And that brings me to another question, actually. And, and this is a recurring theme for my show. My co-host and I have explored conflict between good and evil. Essentially, it's the great theme to explore in writing and in storytelling. And you mentioned during your talk at the Carnegie Music Hall that Joe Kennedy felt he could negotiate with Adolf Hitler. And I have two questions that tie to that. First, do you think if he had the opportunity, Mr. Kennedy would have been successful sitting at a table with Hitler, extolling virtue, ethics, etc.? Or do you subscribe to the belief that some people are just unreachable, that they're purely evil? Okay. First question is answered easily. Uh, no, he could not have made a deal with Hitler. Nobody could have made a deal with Hitler. Uh, he was, you know, he was whistling in the wind if he thought he could. Second, yeah. historians don't deal, one of the virtues, I think, uh, and maybe one of the vices of historians is we don't deal with categories of good and evil. It's not our job to simply judge in theological terms who's good and who's evil. It's our job to tell stories and to let people make their own decisions. Now, certainly, certainly, when we're dealing with someone like Hitler, the results of his action mm -hmm. can only be described as evil. And 
you know, there are probably a handful of world historical figures who we can describe in that way. But the historian right. tries to stay away from that. Again, that that's the job of of others to traffic in the concepts of good and evil. Philosophers, poets, and theologians, I guess. I would think so, yeah. Whenever I'm writing and reading darker characters, it's more interesting when they truly believe that they're doing the right thing for the right reason. And it may not be my reason or your reason, but I think they're more interesting than Snidely Whiplash twirling his mustache at the railroad tracks. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you totally. As a historian, you've examined, researched, interviewed a lot of different types of people who eventually become characters in a story. One of the biggest parts of storytelling is character development. So when you're working with Real Life Matters, what is your approach to character development and what do you want the reader to get from the experience? Well, I want them to, I, what I try to show is the, the interaction between a person and that person's world, that person's society. None of us are self-made, although we try to think of ourselves that way. We are all formed, and our characters are formed, in a tussle with the world that we're born into. We're all situated in a place and a time and a region and a class. We don't choose our parents. Those are givens. And... Character develops in our attempt to take what we're given and to create something new, which I try to do. I mean, I'm, I'm most interested in characters who attempt to move beyond their social worlds, but are continually pulled back into them. Well, I know you only had a short amount of time to spend with me today. I know that we're getting close to the end here. So before we totally run out of time, I just wanted to say thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. I thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk about my work. You're welcome. Again, Dr. David Nassau, professor of history at City University of New York. I'll put a link to his webpage in the show notes. His newest book, The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy. A link will be right there in the show notes directly to the Barnes & Noble stores so you can pick up your own copy. Thanks again for joining me. I'll look forward to uh, reading your next book that comes out and uh, hopefully we can have you back again sometime. Okay, thank you. stuff there i was distracted i was i was a little distracted by that piece as well um it was good it's good it's nice so so we're back um for the uh wildly popular use your illusion segment of the show that's right um uh this week we're gonna keep uh, with the um with the with the neil gaiman motif we've been talking a little bit about neil yeah um 
and um, you know snow glass apples and Nicholas was and uh, my recent uh, you know my my falling back in love with Neil uh, during uh, a recent uh, trip to Florida. Um, so anyway, the open the, your heart. Oh, I, I am. I'm opening my heart. Um, I will. I hold the lock if you hold the key. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, pointy tits. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. Um, uh, I was a big fan of Madonna when I was younger. So was I. I was a big fan of her when she was younger. I, guess I was. I, I was a big fan of her when she like actually dressed like a girl. Yeah. Now she scares me. She but, is kind of frightening. Anyway. Um, so so back to gaming. Use your illusion. And for the kids at home, that's illusion with, with, with an, an A. a. This week's uh, use your illusion is the term sea change. And you may ask yourself, why did I find this whatever? Uh, I'm I'm trying to make (laughs) Why did you find that? (laughs) I did. I found this because. You didn't read Ocean at the End of the Lane yet, which is. That's correct. I did not. Um, But uh, sea change is the name of a story. It is. It's a short story by Mr. Gaiman. It in, is. In Smoke and Mirrors. And it's also a term that is thrown about quite a bit um, in in popular culture and in writing. Now, was Mr. Gaiman clever enough to... Is that an illusion? Well, here, here's... Does that illusion tie into his story title? Well, it's interesting because... And, and, and I will talk about the term, and then we'll have a little sidebar discussion, Daniel, about my thoughts on your query there. Okay. Sea um, change, the term in and of itself, is a marked change, a transformation, if you will. Originally, the term referred to change brought about by the sea. The phrase appears first in Shakespeare's The Tempest from 1610, Act 1, Scene 2. And that reads, and I think the listener should hear it, that reads, Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Now... The what, the, is, what the hell was that? What is that something? <laughs> what does so, that mean? <laughs> so the thing is, you know, I, again, the the, the um, when you hear about somebody going through a sea change, or you read about something going through a sea change, um, you, it, it's generally a reference to somebody going through a, a, a substantial transformation. That's that's how it's used in popular culture. Um, there, there, there's a, there's it's a like when here. I turn into a werewolf well, going through a sea change. You know, it, it, here, here's the thing. Like, th- this is something that was taken from uh, the Washington Post. Uh, and it says both sides in the continuous debate over gay rights will be tempted to treat as a sea change the decision by the state of New Jersey to allow gay and unmarried couples to adopt children. Um, another bit taken from The Nation where it says... Poor writing skills are part of a cultural sea change in which reading and writing have long since lost out to MTV and video games on the one hand and to the need to learn a marketable skill on the other. We're so, fighting that. That's right. So so that's, that's exactly right. So sea changes, um, when somebody says that, it's, it's a significant transformation in one person's life. And um, if you read Gaiman's Sea Change, that's what that's all about. Um, it's kind of one of, it's game, it's one of Gaiman's, poem stories it's uh-huh. written 
like a poem. It looks like a poem if you look at it on on paper. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it's all about the main character literally being changed by the sea. Um, and 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 I think you know when I hear this, it's like. I think back to, you know, centuries ago. Again, this came from The Tempest. Shakespeare wrote it in 1610, and that's, you know, 300-plus years so ago. over 50 years ago. It's it's more than a half a century old. <laughs> I'm Bill Curtis. Join us on Investigative Reports, where we look at three centuries-old tales of the sea. With William Shakespeare. We'll get Shakespeare in here and a couple of forensic yokels to look at the sea changes and look at, I don't know, the way the water affects bones. Uh, Sir, uh, Mr. Shakespeare's dead. (laughs) I'm still Bill Curtis. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back. Um, No, anyway, um, I I, I wanted to get your thoughts on it because the sea, uh, the sea is a big, it's a muse. It's a lot of water. It would. It's, it's a it's, big puddle. It's three quarters of uh, this little planet. Yeah, of this, this blue little marble. blue dot. This yeah. little blue marble. So, um, the sea is uh, an enchanting little mistress for a lot of folks, and and I don't know if writers are inspired by the sea because writers before them were inspired by the sea. And the, back in the day, the sea was that, you know, that's where you went. I mean, yeah. if you if you wanted to go out and see the world, you yeah. had to do it by sea. You had to do I it mean, by boat. Right. And <laughs> I mean, if you think about that, that, you know, the sea was everything. It was the unknown. It was my ticket to change. It was, I'm going to go find a new life out there, and the only way I can better myself is if I take to the sea. And the sea has oftentimes been a subject of film, book, song, whatnot. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, how many times do you see the sea, see the sea? How many times do you see the sea as a reference to something, you know, sea of love, sea of madness, you know, the sea change that, you know, once a boy, a young boy takes to the sea, he'll never be the same. Right. Um, and it's and it's hugely, um, it's pervasive in, in, in England. And I think it's because, you know, the ocean. Well, they're an right island, there. yeah. Well, right. And, and, and that was, you know, fishermen and, you know, things that had to... Um, shipbuilding. Yeah, that's that's a huge industry over there, and and I think and a lot of the the authors that I read, a lot of the authors that you read, and Gaiman being one of them. Yeah, they're British. Yeah. Um, the sea has to have a huge impact. But it's like the sea plays such a important uh, part in people's development. And I think it's that that sense of wanderlust. Like I'm going to go as a young boy, and despite the fact that mom told me not to, I'm going to go jump on that ship. And I'm going to go find myself. I'll be a pirate. And that's the thing. It's like young Daniel went out to the sea when he was, you know, but a young lad. And when he came back, he had been changed by the sea. Yeah. Um, And and I think that's what it's all about. Um, Again, if you if you wonder what young Jack Sparrow was like. Well, but that's the thing. Like, if you that would be an interesting story. That would be a great story. But if I mean, but that's before he became. But if you go and look at that. How many times? I mean, that, that's the whole thing. You know, the Jack Sparrow is a, is a great analogy because that's a that's a huge theme throughout those movies. Yeah. About Jack wants to be young forever and he wants to be able to sail the seas forever. Yeah. That's freedom to him. You know, and if you, even if you go back and look at it like um, Barbosa in the first movie. Yeah. The the the, the Jeffrey Rush character um, that you know he was cursed mm-hmm. and part of him you know he's immortal but as he says he doesn't get to you know 
feel the spray of the the ocean on his face he right. doesn't get to feel that you know that's the thing it's like yeah you live forever but you don't get to and jack's whole thing you know he wrestles with that i can become immortal and you can blah 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 i can i can do this i can do that but i can sail the sea forever yeah is that a good thing is that a bad thing yeah you know i don't know there's there's such a the sea is a metaphor yeah sailing sailing the sea and the sea has always been <laughs> excuse me a metaphor for i think freedom for man woman searching out the unknown yeah the free freedom exactly uh change adventure in, in, in the, the 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 act of change the yeah. whole life is transformation yeah and especially this, if you're dealing with a coastal area yeah, where sea is my portal to that right that plus that's where your food comes from you know i mean you, you look at all these coastal communities i mean fishing and you know the sea provides yeah. we're essentially all seawater right we have the same composition of salt and water in our our blood as there is in the sea this planet is based on you know it's interesting i mean you you made this comment before we were talking about quentin tarantino and i remember him saying that um i think he wherever i think he grew up in michigan i think <laughs> he grew up in detroit and i think he lived very close to the airport and when he was working as a clerk in the video store it was very close to the airport and i remember him saying one time that he looked at plane when planes left he looked at them enviously because that was somebody escaping to somewhere else yeah there's and a big world out there. That's right. And I think the sea is the same metaphor for that. And again, I think a lot of that goes back to early days. I think, you know, as with, you know, 99% of writing, it all ties back to Shakespeare in some way. Mm-hmm. In, in the times when Shakespeare was writing, and The Tempest is obviously a big work of Shakespeare, um, the sea was it. I mean, that was the thing. That was... That's what you did. You went out to, if you were going out to find yourself, if you're going out to be successful, because, you know, if you were going out to engage in commerce or whatever it was, or if you're going out to conquer new lands, you were doing it by sea. And holy shit, we want to be on that boat. Unfortunately, most people never came back from that. Or if they did, they came back from that changed. Yes. That's a that's a theme in a lot of literature. Absolutely, you know, the it's the quest, which the, is again one of the basic stories. Yeah. There's also the the parent that doesn't want you to go. Right. You know, like Star Wars uses it as well. It's, it's a you great know, point. British in Star stories. Wars, the sea is space. Exactly right. It's Luke leaving Tatooine and going yes. with them. That's right. Yeah, it's a great point. And even while he's on Tatooine, the Dune Sea, and you know, it's great. It's, yeah, it's, you exactly. know, I mean, it's it's a desert, but it's still a sea in that regard but you have a, a lot of stories traditionally throughout history where the family owns a farm and the young man wants to go out and see the world and do other things but he's supposed to stay and be a farmer but that's not for him so he wants adventure he doesn't want to be in that town where and be born there and die there that's right you know and not see the world but there's a lot of stories like that where you know you leave and you go to sea for adventure that's right and, uh, and the and princess like, bride is a, is a great one for that and, yeah and like you alluded to earlier the person leaving their hometown and going to college and right. coming back that still is a sea change and yes. that's where the terminology comes from you're right it's somebody leaving where they're from going somewhere else and then coming back yeah. and then seeing what that transformation is and that's where the term sea change comes from and that's it you nailed it correct all right so i did want to i did want to mention real quick um because we're uh now uh seven episodes in seven um gluttony envy i don't know stitcher (laughs) stitcher is actually oh i was doing the sins yeah, uh, you're well, doing something entirely. Different. Well, no, I just wanted to mention Stitcher real quick because um, through a Stitcher darkly. Yes, 
Um, we we host our, our our podcast on Libsyn. It's fed out to Zune and iTunes. But there's lots of other ways to get podcasts out there. I mean, you can go directly to Ninth Story and click on the images, and uh, that will play a sound file for you. You can go to the All Stories page, which will play not only the podcast, but the ride and the reading for All Hallows' Eve, the safe place. But... When you're out there on the road, there's an application called Stitcher, and uh, we did sign up with Stitcher. They carry our show, and what they do is they take a copy of the feed from Libsyn, and they actually move it over to their servers, so you can listen to it streaming, or you can get it, you can download it now and listen to it, Uh, but I just wanted to mention Stitcher because I do use it, and they have our show on there. Yeah, so I don't know. Try uh, Stitcher. I don't. I don't know how I do it. Um, because I, I just I listen to our show on a variety of different devices. Anyway, um, I'm gonna commission. Craig is going to commission Dan to write a story called Stitcher in the Rye. <laughs> a 100 word in like a 100 like, word love story to Stitcher. To Stitcher, Stitcher yeah. in, and it should be called Stitcher in the Rye. And Stitcher in the Rye will not count towards the 100 words. I'm challenging you, Dan Foydick, the writer, to do that right now, this day. Okay. I'll just delete this part from the show. So. No, you should do it. Come on. You can do it. Just Maybe. write Stitcher in the Rye, Stitcher in the Rye, Stitcher in the Rye. Do that 25 times. 20, I like Bart Simpson <laughs> right. at the, at the chalkboard. Do, do, do it I promise I will not mention Stitcher All on right, my okay. show again. Stitcher is great. It's delicious. It's a great food additive. Um, sprinkle it over Cheerios, and it's tasty. It is. It's uh, more nutritious than Soylent Green. <laughs> it is. It's not, and it's not made out of people. It's not made out of people. Stitcher is not made it's out made of out people. It's made out of people's voices. It's, eh, it is. Mm, yes. Yeah. All right. All right, folks, that's it. That's all we got for you this week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again for episode eight. You've been listening to the Ninth Story Podcast, a Hicks and Fabulous production. Sounds very British. Right, yeah. Like a very British joke. It does. That's the thing. It's like, let's back to all tea and scone, and then let's go write some shit. (laughs) And then, you know, after that, we'll go over to Stonehenge and listen to Radiohead on the way. (laughs) What a little baby. Right. And then we'll go home and watch a fucking Doctor Who marathon. That I wrote a new episode for. Well, I wrote a new episode for. And then, you know, maybe when we cuddle up a bit later, I'll recite to you complete works of Douglas Adams. (laughs) What do you think about that one, Amanda fucking Palmer? (laughs) Are you saying? saying? Well, you know, here's the funny thing. (laughs) Not that that wasn't funny, but... (laughs) Um, Monty Python's get back together. <laughs> of course they are. They are. Did you hear? They, well, how many of them are left? There's, I don't know, like six of them, I, I guess. I think only one of them's dead, right? Uh, well, Grant Chapman's dead. Grant Chapman, we know for sure, is dead. I like you. You, you can cuddle with me anytime you want. Yeah, uh, I know what you're saying. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, they're, but they're, everybody else is alive, right? So Palin's alive. Palin, Terry, yeah. Terry Jones is, is Terry Gilliam on board. Yes. Really? So there's a press conference as we tape this. So this will be old news by the time this gets John out. John Cleese and Eric Idle. So yeah, yeah they, they're going to be uh, having a press them. conference on Thursday of this week to okay. announce what they're getting back together for. Well, well played, Dan. With Thursday of this week. Yeah. You didn't. Nobody knows what week. That's right. It's it could just be that you downloaded this show too late. That's that's right. It's your it's your fault now. It's your fault. You didn't get it in time. This is let us be a lesson to you. We're two countries separated by a common language. L- listen to this. If you fucking download it on time instead of being a Ponzi get and sitting around and waiting for somebody to come Wankers. by you and say to you, Oh yeah, I think you should just go over a night story and download this little fucking bit. Yeah, if you just fucking did it on your own on you time you would have known or you would have known before the guys in my payphone hey, fucking it. wanker yeah but but instead you, you sit around like I thought, oh no well if I'm married down the lane she has to say if I think about these pawns he gets over at night store so what I thought well I will well, let's do them did you know that we actually have listeners in England well we are gonna after this <laughs> not anymore <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Alien. friends. That's what the nine stories all Ta-ta. about. Alienating countries one at a time. time. Ta-ta, friends. Ta-ta. I, I heard that little girl talking in the beginning, and I thought it was a show for us. Yeah. But then these two yanks start talking about stuff. You take your fucking union jack and shove it up your sideways. <laughs> for all give a shit. <laughs> Wankers. Remember... The 5th of November. That's right. I, got, I, got, I got to tell you something about Guy Fawkes. You got to know what the Fawkes are talking about, you, you little shitheads. <laughs> you bitches. No one over here sounds like you two people. You blokes Your, your accent sounds a little muddled. You blokes Where are you from? You, you, you don't even know what a decent pint tastes like. I bet you drink, you're probably sitting there drinking your gold American beers. Yeah. Wankers. You think that pissed means angry. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. I, I love the British. I do. And, and again, I love the British. I love the Canadians. And I, and I do. I love Americans. I do. Um, so I don't want to offend. I don't want to offend any more countries. So let's yeah. go back to Amanda fucking Palmer. Yeah. Where we started this whole bit. 